Well, good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and then we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. You can follow along with the reading and the response on the screens. Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, and verses 13 through 16, as well as Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 11, chapter 8 says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Genesis chapter 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make, you a great, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, thank you, Jacob. You guys can grab a seat. Good to be with you this morning. Lots of uh, new faces. Thank you so much for joining us. Haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Ian. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at the King's Church and get to open up uh, God's word for us today. So thanks for uh, joining us as we do that. Uh, before we jump into our sermon time today, I did want to take a moment up top here to uh, acknowledge for the second week in a row, actually, some people who are not here in the room and to pray for uh, a new work that's beginning in South Florida today. So many of you know uh, Winston Miller, who's been a friend of the King's Church. Uh, I always joke he's uh, everybody's favorite preacher here at the King's Church because when Winston came and preached, y'all were amen and giving him lots of things back. I was like, man, teach me your ways, Winston. I don't know. My people are pretty quiet. Uh, so Winston is planting Grace Life Church down in Lauder Hill, Florida, right outside of Fort Lauderdale. And uh, today is their launch Sunday. He's been uh, working on this for a while. As you can imagine, trying to plant a church in 2020 was somewhat challenging. And uh, the Lord has graciously sustained them. We've been able to financially partner with them. And we were able to send a little team down this weekend to serve as just a set-up, tear-down team to canvas their neighborhoods, prayer walk, invite people. And uh, it's just a really, really exciting morning. So some of you were with us when we launched the King's Church. You know all that went into that and the excitement of that morning. And what I want to do is I want to pause and I want to pray and ask that the Lord would uh, bless not just their morning, but bless this new church plant, this new gospel work that is planting in an area that desperately needs the good news of Jesus. Uh, if you've been in South Florida, incredibly diverse, incredibly broken, uh, not a lot of Christians in desperate need of the gospel. So there's no better way that we can support uh, our friend and brother, besides what we've already done, than to pray for him this morning. So they are launching at 11 a.m. as their service, so 22 minutes from now. They're going to be gathering, and so would love for us to pause and pray for them. So would you pray with me, and for Winston, and for Grace Life Church. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that in the midst of all of the just craziness of this past year, 
uh, that you have seen it fit to sustain uh, Winston and Brenda and their family and begin to build what is uh, called Grace Life Church down in Lauder Hill, Florida. So Lord, thank you that we have got an opportunity to partner with them. I pray that this morning as they launch that you would bring uh, neighbors and friends and coworkers and family members and people that I know they've been praying for a long time would come and would hear the good news of the gospel, that they would encounter a community of gospel people and that their lives would be changed as a result. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless their launch this morning. Be with Winston as he preaches the word. I know there's so many other things that your mind goes to on a launch weekend to help him to focus on bringing the good news of Jesus to people who desperately need to hear it. And we pray that not just this Sunday, but every week going forward, that you would sustain their work, that you would bring more laborers for the harvest, and that, Lord, you would use Grace Life Church to see people reach with the gospel, for disciples to be made, and for the mission of Jesus to continue. Jesus, we thank you that you are building your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Help encourage our brothers and sisters at Grace Life Church this morning. And God, help us now as we turn our attention to your word, as we continue looking at what it means to endure by faith through Hebrews 11. Uh, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of Jesus today. Help us to leave here with a greater sense of who you are and, and a greater worship of the good news of your son. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for doing that. I'll be sure to update you as I hear back from uh, Winston this week. But now as we turn our attention to Hebrews 11, uh, I've entitled our sermon today, Faith and Our True Home. Faith and Our True Home. And let's start right there with that theme for just a minute. When I say the word home, what comes to mind for you? What comes to mind when you think of home? Well, maybe for some of you, it's the place you were born or the place that you grew up in. Uh, for some of you, that's been the same place. Maybe, you've, maybe you're living here in Lakeland, and Lakeland is your home. Of course, we are in Florida, so that would make you the exception, right? I mean, we actually planted this church on a bunch of Missouri transplants, right? So shout out to all of you who are here in the room. Thank you for joining us. Glad that the Lord saw fit for you to move here to Florida. Uh, but for some of you, home has been the same place. For others of you, maybe you moved around a lot. Maybe you grew up in a military family where every couple years home transitioned. And I remember, of course, for college students, home is a big deal, right? So home often meant that nice home-cooked meal. You came home with all of your laundry from weeks of not doing it, right? You begged your mom to do it for you. You meant sleeping in your own bed. I always had a newfound appreciation for home and that kind of stretch of college, right? Maybe for some of you, when you think of home, you think of a place of comfort and safety and good memories. But I know for others of you, you might think of home and it can feel like a place of pain, or loss, or disappointment, or heartache. But here's what I want us to appreciate today. Home can be a complicated thing, can't it? There's some complications that can come with that, but despite all of that, there seems to be a longing for home that is innate in human nature. It's often elusive for us to get there, but we long for it nonetheless. And I think the story of Abraham today from Hebrews 11 and then Genesis 12 is going to help us appreciate why. Now, Abraham's a big deal in the scripture. In fact, he shows up all over the place. If you just search Abraham's name in the New Testament, he shows up all over the place. So it's no surprise that Abraham makes the most notable appearance in Hebrews 11, this whole chapter about faith, because after all, he is called the man of faith in the New Testament. He's often referred to as the father of the faithful. What I want us to see is that Abraham's story is a paradigm for the Christian life, a life that responds to the call of God with faith and repentance. 
And that initial call begins with a call to leave, a call to go. And for Abraham, that meant going to a homeland that he had never actually been to before. This is an interesting thought. So today, as we look at Hebrews 11, Genesis 12, here's our main idea. Here's where I think the text is leading us. Faith embraces the call of God as we long for our true home in the city of God. Faith embraces the call of God as we long for our true home in the city of God. I want to begin by just kind of walking through this story by talking about the idea of embracing the call. Embracing the call. What does it mean for Abraham to do that? Let's look back at Hebrews 11, verse 8, and then we'll go back to Genesis 12. Verse 8 says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Genesis 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So the picture we get here in Genesis 12 is of one of suddenness. Abraham is carrying on. Yes, I know it's Abram. I'm just going to call him Abraham. It's easier, okay? I know some of you Bible nerds might get on me, but... Hebrews calls him Abraham, so I'm in good company, all right? Abraham is carrying on with his life, and then God shows up and interrupts everything. We learn from the context in Genesis that Abraham is from the land of Ur, lovely place. Doesn't sound lovely, Ur, just you are. Ur of the Chaldeans, and that at this time they were living in Haran. And God, the Lord, appears to him and he says, I want you to go. I want you to leave this place. Now, for us today to get up and move somewhere new is really not that big of a deal. I mean, we live in a pretty transient culture. It's normative in many ways for people as they grow up or as they get a new job or as they really just want to live in this city to get up and move there. But this really is a modern phenomenon. For most of human history, and certainly for Abraham, this is not normal. This was an astonishing request from someone that he had never met before this moment, by the way. And look at the language that's used in Genesis 12. The Lord asks him to leave three things. He asks him to leave his country, which would have been his physical place of geography, where he had lived, where presumably he had amassed wealth and land. He's asked to leave his country. And then he's asked to leave his kindred, as in his people. The people who would have known him his whole life and who would have created a culture that they lived in. This would have included their religion, by the way. Abraham was not a worshiper of Yahweh. He was a pagan worshiper at this point. He probably worshiped the stars and the planets and the local Chaldean deities. In fact, the names of Abraham's relatives in, Hebrew, in uh, excuse me, Genesis 11, they all seem to be named after planets or stars or gods. So this is who Abraham is. He's asked to leave his country, his kindred and their culture and their way of life, and then lastly, his father's house. His father's house. He's asked to leave his immediate family, his people, where he had spent his entire life. See, what God is doing there is intentional. He's pushing closer and closer to what matters most to Abraham. I mean, his identity, his security, 
his comfort and his future are all wrapped up in those categories. And by the way, he's 75 years old. He's not a young man at this stage of the game. He clearly was quite happy where he was. He was going to live out the rest of his life there, and that was it. But the Lord shows up and says, no, I want you to leave this place. I want you to go somewhere where you're going to be a stranger in a foreign land amongst the people that you do not know. I don't know how well you know human history, but for most of human history, that's actually a really dangerous request. You don't just wander into other people's territory and land and set up shop without there being consequences. This is a dangerous request. And by the way, he's not even told where he's going. You catch that? In Genesis 12, the Lord shows up and says, hey, I want you to go to the place that I'm going to tell you. I don't know about you, but I'm not following on that trip. What do you mean go? To where? You're not even going to tell me where. But that's the call. And Hebrews tells us that by faith, Abraham obeyed. He went as the Lord told him. You see, brothers and sisters, faith, the biblical faith, is trusting God with the future. Which, yeah, that seems elementary, we get it, but biblical faith means trusting God with the future, I would say especially when it's uncertain. Especially when it's uncertain. See, biblical faith doesn't get to see the end in the beginning. Abraham couldn't have hopped on Yelp. He couldn't have hopped on TripAdvisor to take a look at all the restaurants and the local opportunities available to him in Canaan. He wasn't even told where he was going. Faith trusts God with the future. And by the way, if most of us had a picture of what was in the future for us, if if we could see in advance what this life of faith might bring to us, I bet most of us are opting out. Most of us are opting out. So how does Abraham have faith to do this? Well, he seems to be trusting in two things, and they're right there in the Genesis text. The first thing he's putting his trust in is God's promise. God's promise. You could say his word. Right? Why does Abraham go? Well, God doesn't just say, go to this place I'm going to show you. He also promises him an inheritance. He promises that he will be this great nation, that all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him, that those who bless him will be blessed. Those who curse him or who are a threat to him, they'll be dealt with. You see, Abraham, by the way, is 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, is barren. They have no children. More on that next week. Come on back. But for now, imagine being told, you're going to be a great nation. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, but you don't have any offspring. Talk about faith. Faith is believing that even though my circumstances would say there's no way this actually is going to happen. So he's trusting God's promise. He's trusting that what the Lord says is going to happen will indeed happen. That's faith. So he's trusting in God's promise, but secondly, he's trusting in God's presence. The Lord doesn't tell him where he's going yet, but he does say, go to the land that I will show you. There's this ensuring of God's presence along the journey. See, here's what I don't want you to miss. God is ultimately calling Abraham to himself more than a particular place. The call has to do with going to God himself. That's going to become more clear as the story goes. And listen, brothers and sisters, the call of Abraham in this way is the call that is on each and every one of our lives in the gospel. This is the paradigm for the Christian life. You know what the word for church in the New Testament literally means? It means the called out one. As in, those who have been called by God to himself, 
to leave everything else behind and to trust him, to follow him. The Abraham story is all our story in some way, shape, or form. God's grace meets us right where we are, but it's taking us somewhere. That's what happens with Abraham. As one author says, grace meets us where we are, but it does not leave us where it found us. There's a call to go. The Lord is asking Abram to go with him to the place that he's going to show him. And in order to do that, in obedience and faith, he has to leave everything else behind. He has to leave life as he knows it behind. Now, that feels incredibly disruptive and costly. You're getting the point. Of course it is. Incredibly disruptive. This changed the rest of Abraham's story. And the gospel makes the same demands on us. Answering the call of God means leaving behind the world. It means leaving behind our own agenda, our own priorities. The gospel is not say, hey, let me see what you've got going on in your life and see if we can sprinkle in some blessing there. No, the gospel says, I want you to forsake all of those things that you have lined up for your life and follow me. The call of Abram is the call on all of us. This is why Jesus, over and over again, especially when large crowds start to gather, he looks out and he says, hey, this is awesome that you're here. Uh, don't forget, though, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and then follow me. And it's funny what happens. You know when he says that? The crowds begin to disperse a little bit. Before too critical, they're actually taking it seriously. Because a call to follow Jesus, the call of the gospel, is a call unto death. It's a call unto death. That's what it would have felt like to Abraham. But in the gospel... Resurrection comes after death. The crown comes after the cross. It's a call to forsake all else, but we move in faith toward something better and bigger than you and I could ever imagine. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 3 after he lists all of his religious accomplishments and privileges and accomplishments. He says this, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, literally a heaping pile of trash, in order that I may gain Christ. Is that your story? If you're here and you're saying, yeah, I'm a Christ follower, I put my faith in him, have you forsaken all else to follow him? Because listen, I know that some of you here have probably tried to come to Jesus while still clinging on to something back here. Say, yeah, I'll put my faith in you, but I really want to hold on to this piece of my identity. Yeah, I'll follow you, but I really like the comfort that this thing brings. Or this sin, I still kind of like it. I'm not sure I want to repent of it yet. It's not how the call works. The call is to forsake all for the surpassing worth of following Jesus Christ. That's what it means to embrace the call. That's Abraham's story. But that doesn't mean his life is automatically easy. Instead, what we're told is that Abraham now, as he embraces the call, is going to live in exile. So second point, living in exile. Look at verse 9 of Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his son, heirs with him of the same promise. Then in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. 
Now, it's interesting. The whole promise through Abraham was about a land that he was going to be given to him and to his, his descendants. I mean, he's promised that he will be a great nation in this promised land of Canaan. But the rest of Abraham's life is ironically marked by a sense of homelessness. Yes, he went into the land of Canaan, into the land of promise, but Hebrews tells us that he lived there as a stranger and an exile, that they dwelled in tents. Now, I'm not sure how many of you really enjoy camping, any big campers out there. I'm personally a big, big fan of the great indoors. Very pro air conditioning, <laughs> big fan of a bathroom with a door and toilet paper. Sleeping in a bed is a nice plus. It's cool to go outside and sleep on the ground for a few days, I get it. It's either freezing cold or ridiculously hot, right? There's no in-between when you're camping. You get to battle mosquitoes and bears and those dreaded birds, right? The whole thing's out there. As Jim Gaffigan says, we only use the phrase happy camper sarcastically. Might as well just call them campers, right? I digress a little bit. We come back, in all seriousness, a tent is the ultimate picture of temporary living, isn't it? It's a picture of temporary living. I mean, you stake that tent down, but those stakes can come up awful quickly. I mean, if you're camping, you ought to live and travel lightly. That's the picture of Abraham and his family. Even though they are geographically in the land of promise, they're still strangers and exiles. They're dwelling in tents. Well, there's a little hint as to why this is the case. Yes, Hebrews 11:9 says they dwelled in a foreign land, but look at verse 13. It says that they acknowledged they were strangers on the earth. Not strangers in Canaan, strangers on the earth. Here's the secret. No matter where Abraham went, because he followed the call of God, guess what? He's now a stranger in an exile. There was nowhere on earth that he was going to go that would make him arrive at home. And that's because every human being, whether they can articulate it or not, or whether they realize it or not, ever since Genesis 3 has been living in a sort of exile. We are away from the presence and the place of God, the place that we were created to dwell. Nowhere on earth is truly home, at least not yet. That's the day that we await. But this is a paradigm for our lives. You see, the identity of Abraham as a sojourner, a stranger in an exile, is carried over in the New Testament to the church, to the called out one. This is a massive theme in Peter's letters, for example. He opens up 1 Peter by addressing his letter to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. In Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, he's saying, to all of these Christians who are scattered across different countries in Asia Minor, you are elect exiles. Now he's not talking about their earthly geopolitical situation. He is reminding them of what is theologically true about them. They have been chosen and called by God. And precisely because of this, it now makes them exiles to the world. Yes, they were citizens of those various places, but their ultimate citizenship transcended this earthly reality. This is the consistent refrain of the New Testament. Hebrews 13, 14 says, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We have a city here, for most of you, you're probably citizens of this country, but not a lasting one. We seek the city that is to come. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Abraham could rightly be called the first elect exile who was being called back home. But how do we live faithfully in that? How do we live faithfully in this identity as strangers, sojourners, and exiles? You see, I, this is a huge deal for the church right now. There is so much confusion and arguments and disagreements over how we do this, especially as the Christian faith, or at least American civil religion, has moved from being predominant to now being viewed by our culture with skepticism, sometimes even disdain. Well, I can assure you this, I'm not going to answer all those questions this morning, we don't have time, but if we're taking this identity seriously, it's going to be a life that is full of tension, full of tension. Tension is my favorite word when I preach. I haven't used it in a while, so welcome back. Here it is. Life is a tension, okay? Because we are constantly going to be facing two pulls if we try to live faithfully as elect exiles. The first pull is this, to view our exile as actually being an arrival, as in to view the place where we're supposed to be strangers and sojourners as actually being home. See, we live like this when we just sort of assimilate our lives to the way of the world. After all, it's more comfortable that way, isn't it? There's less confrontation. There's less people thinking you're a bigot or weird for what you believe. So you just assimilate into the world. Life becomes seemingly easier. Constant temptation. But on the other end of the spectrum, we can view our exile as sort of an escape, an escapism. We can disengage from the things of the world and withdraw back into our own Christian silos. We can just be concerned about our own business and fail to engage our neighbors and our coworkers and others with the hope of a true and better homeland. You see, navigating this tension fits the old cliche well, that we are to live in the world but not of the world. That's really hard to do. But as we acknowledge this world, this city, this place, this earthly citizenship that we find ourselves in is secondary to our heavenly citizenship, we begin to get a better picture of what's going on. We are citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of heaven and then secondarily of our earthly dwelling. Our heavenly citizenship ought to empower and inform our earthly citizenship. Here's how Peter addresses that tension. A little bit later on in 1 Peter 2, he says this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Literally, it means beautiful. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Peter's cutting right through those two poles, isn't he? He's saying, listen, don't live like the world. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's not actually going to make you more comfortable. It's not actually going to address those longings. It's going to make you like the world. The world's going to speak against you as evildoers. That won't happen if you're just going with the flow. But at the same time, don't withdraw. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they see your good deeds, they can't see your good deeds unless you're living among them. You see, don't make it home, but don't withdraw. We have been called back home in Jesus Christ, but we're not there yet. Until we die or Christ comes back, we are not yet home, which means our exile continues, but we're elect exiles. We've answered the call of a truer 
and better home. And how we live in between is what Peter's urging us there. I love how James K.A. Smith puts this. He, he coins this phrase that we ought to have a refugee spirituality. Listen to his description. The question of the tension, ah, see, it's not just me who uses tension. The question of the tension of the between becomes a catalyst for pilgrimage, prompting me, like Abraham, to answer the call and go, or whether I try to decamp or escape in that distant country, turning my exile into arrival, suppressing my sense that there must be something more that another shore is calling. So much of our restlessness and disappointment is the result of trying to convince ourselves that we're already home. The alternative is not escapism, it is a refugee spirituality, unsettled yet hopeful, tenuous but searching, eager to find the hometown we've never been to. That's the Christian life of faith. But we haven't answered the end question yet. What is that hometown? What are we awaiting in the future? What was Abraham looking forward to? Let's close by talking about longing for home. Look at verse 10 of Hebrews 11. For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And down in verse 14 and following, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. It is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It's interesting, when we think of a homeland, we think of where we were born or where we were raised or came from, right? Well, for those who live by faith, this is not exactly true. The point is made clear here. The author says, listen, I'm not talking about Ur. I'm sure Ur is a lovely place, but that's not what I'm talking about. If Abraham wanted to go back to Ur or Haran, he could have just gone back. He could have just returned. But that's not what I'm talking about. He's seeking and desiring a homeland that he has not yet been to. His true home and our true home is out in front of the life of faith, something we meet at the end of the journey, not at the beginning. But look at how this homeland is described. It's beautiful. He says that he was seeking a city with foundations. You know what has no foundations? A tent. No foundations. It's got the tiny little stakes, right? That's it. It could be picked up and moved or blown away by the wind, snap of a finger. Abraham is looking for a place that was unshakable. This city is safe, secure, and abiding. And the reason why is because more profoundly, its designer and builder is God himself. I mean, you could pick out the best architecture firm, the best construction company. You could get all these fancy parks and fountains and waterfalls, whatever you want to do, but it's got nothing on this city's builder and design. It's God himself. And God cannot be overthrown. This city will last. Thirdly, it is a better and heavenly country. It's better because its citizenship is eternal. Its government rests on the shoulders of King Jesus, of whom it is said that the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will establish his rule with justice and righteousness, and it will last forevermore. And 
best news of all. It is a place prepared for God's people. God is preparing it for you and for me. He is not ashamed to invite his people home to this place. He will be the ones at the gates at the end of our journey who greets us and says, welcome home. Welcome home. You see, the promised land of Canaan, it's not an end in and of itself. It's a picture of a greater promised land and a greater hometown. So the exhortation for the people of faith is this, don't turn back. Don't turn back. Press on in faith, step by step, towards this homeland. That is what you are made for. And don't forget the context in Hebrews. The people he's writing to were tempted to go back to where they came from. See, they were Christians who had converted out of Judaism, and they're looking at their present circumstances, full of persecution, full of hardships, full of suffering, and they're going, is this really worth it? I don't know if this is what I signed up for. And the author says, no, 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 don't go back there. Don't shrink back. Keep walking in faith. Look at what awaits you in the future. It's more glorious than you could ever imagine, and faith is trusting that's what's coming at the end of the journey. Faith is trusting that that is the real thing, even if you can't see it yet. So living by faith, longing for home, means we fix our eyes on that reality. We lift our eyes above our present circumstances and suffering. We align the compass of our hearts and our worship with that being our true north. It was a really fascinating article in NPR a few years back. It was entitled this, Why Can't We Walk Straight? It's an interesting thought. Some researcher in Germany who had way too much time on their hands was doing research about this, and what they did was they blindfolded these participants, and I mean really blindfolded, not where you could like see out the bottom. We're talking like full face masks, like COVID friendly, right? They were ready. And they bring them to this wide open area, and they tell them, hey, listen, you're blindfolded, walk straight for an hour. And then they track their course on GPS. And these people aren't even close to walking in a straight line. It's absurd. Little squigglies, circles. One person ended up behind where they started. It's crazy. Then they tried a similar idea. They dropped them in this thick forest without blindfolds, just where they couldn't see things off in the distance, and said, okay, walk, forge a straight line for the next hour. Exact same thing happened all over the place. And here was their conclusion. I'm going to directly quote the article, okay? They said, humans apparently slip into circles when we can't see an external focal point, like a mountaintop, a sun, or a moon. Without a corrective, our insides take over, and there's something inside of us that just won't stay straight. That's a profound thought, isn't it? If that's not an analogy for the Christian life, I don't know what is. See, what Hebrews is telling us, what that ridiculous study is telling us, is listen, we need an external fixed point. The journey of faith is one that feels like it's winding. We feel like we're walking in circles. We have all sorts of hardships and difficulties, maybe even persecution. But those of faith know that home is not back there. It's fixed in the future. We gaze upon it. We study it. We make it the aim of our lives. See, Abraham longed for the city of God. So too ought we. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians 3. He says, if then... You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. Well, why? 
Our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a savior who is coming. Or consider one final exhortation from C.S. Lewis. He summarizes this well. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own heart, would know that what they do want and what they want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in, my, in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And listen to this. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. That's a refugee spirituality. That is living by faith. And listen, let me close with this. God's not asking you to do something that he himself has not already done. You see, yes, Abraham's gone before us in this journey, but I have better news than that. Jesus has gone before us in this journey. Think about what was asked of Abraham to leave home, to leave your father's house, to walk by faith to a faraway land on a mission that was greater than what he could have accomplished. And think about our Savior, who did precisely that at every turn. Who Philippians 2 said, he did not count equality with God of things to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he came. He came to a faraway land on a mission. And listen, he left home to bring us home. He left home to bring us home. And one day he is going to welcome us to that place, to the homeland we've never been, but the one that we are designed for. Until that day, we walk by faith and not by sight. We desire and we look forward and we fix our eyes to the city whose designer and builder is God. We press on to that other country and we help others to do the same. And all along the way, we realize that Jesus has walked this path before us and he's walking with us still. That's good news that we need as strangers and exiles, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you did come here on a rescue mission. You left the comfort and riches and glories of heaven to come to a people who rejected you, who despised you, who, because of our sin, led all the way to a cross. But Jesus, we thank you that on that cross, what the world meant for evil, you turned into good. You accomplished salvation for us. Three days later, you were raised from the dead. You say that you go and prepare a place for us in your Father's house. And as we await that day, we ask that we would fix our eyes on that hope. Lord, we repent of trying to hold on to the things of our lives and this world or the sin that clings so closely. And instead, we run to you and to your throne of grace that we might find mercy and receive help in our time of need. So Jesus, help show us the ways in which we are either making our home improperly here or we're seeking to escape, whereas you've called us to live as elect exiles, to be faithful here, to seek to press on to that other country and to bring others with us. May we be a church who does that. May the King's Church be just a little outpost and embassy of our coming homeland. 
and help us to live and endure by faith until that day. We pray that in Jesus' name.